today's scriptures from Matthew 26, verses 31 through 46. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear all the beauty that your word brings to our hearts. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. May you recalibrate our hearts this morning. Direct our loves to that which is truly worthy of our greatest affections, our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we pray not only for ourselves, but for our children and our children's programs that you would teach their hearts the goodness of Jesus. And we pray for the entire body of Christ gathered here in this place this morning, in this region. May it quiver with new and renewed life for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, greetings, Trinity family. It is a delight to be back with you all from uh, the North County, from Paso Robles. Uh, I bring you warm greetings from Covenant Church Paso. Uh, we uh, love you all and uh, think of you often in our prayers, our scheming of ways we could kind of knit our families even closer together with some activities. Uh, 
Bryce gets together regularly with Will Hawk and myself as we did previously with Paul Schuler and with John Medlock and with uh, Brian Kay. So we are always, um, always endeavoring to find how can we, how can we uh, pull our families together. And so keep your eyes out for that. We'll, we hope to have something coming up. Uh, it is a delight to bring you the word of the Lord this morning. And I know you're in a series uh, right now called uh, Living a, a Cross-Centered Life. And this text this morning, I realize you're not working through the Gospel of Matthew, that uh, Pastor Bryce has been weaving themes from different parts of the scripture. Uh, this is a, obviously an incredible passage. Is there any passage that's not incredible? Uh, this account that we're given here in Matthew, of course, is given to us in the other Gospel accounts as well. Narratives from, Matthew, uh, from Mark and Luke. And then John kind of weaves a, a little different angle on it all, but incorporates some of the same parts in it as well. So we, we're looking a little bit at the, the scandal of, uh, of the cross, uh, and we sung about that scandalous night. And um, it, it's interesting because the account in Matthew 26, of course, if we were following uh, the, the, the narrative, what, what preceded this was the Last Supper of the Lord Jesus. And we know that the Last Supper was obviously a very familiar uh, event for Jesus and his disciples. It was a yearly event. Of course, it spans hundreds of years back to the, the exodus from Egypt as God brought his people out with a mighty hand. And we know that many of the elements that are currently observed in a Passover Seder to this day trace way back yeah, uh, to the time of Christ and even before. And, and of those elements, it's a very interesting thing that happens in a Passover Seder. Uh, children ask a question. Uh, they pose a question to the adults in a Passover Seder. It says, why is this night different from all other nights? And uh, it's, it's rooted in the Exodus 13 account of the uh, Exodus and Passover because God says, when your children ask you, you are to tell them the story of God's powerful, redemptive hand. So we could surmise that on this night, this Passover night, uh, someone had to pose that question, a child, why is this night different from all other nights? And of course, then you would explain the whole history of the redemptive work of God, the Lamb of God, the blood on the lintel, the, the, the angel of death passing over. Well, I give to you that this night, this night that Jesus celebrates this Last Supper was way different than all other nights. And it was going to be a night uh, that those disciples would never forget. And it's a, a night that the church, the people of God, could say this is why this night is so different from all other nights. Um, I want to talk to you about the anguish of the cross and why this anguish, we're not talking about the actual event of the crucifixion tonight, but we're, the anguish of the cross already is being felt by our Savior there in the garden. But before we get to that, there's something that this text also tells us why this night is different from all other nights. It is the 
what I'll call it this, it's the epic failure of all human resolve. Okay, this is your first point. The epic failure of all human resolve. And then we'll talk about the agonizing victory of Jesus. But, and then finally, we'll, 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 we'll reflect a little bit on living a cross-centered life. Okay, the epic failure of all human resolve, agonizing victory of Jesus, living a cross-centered life. What is this epic failure of all human resolve? Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And every one of the disciples falls this night. And in their failure, all our hopes, all our hopes that we can be resolute, that we could hang with Jesus through uh, the, the, the cup he had to drink should be shattered completely and we should be undone and we should uh, absolutely um, recognize that there is but one hope given to us in this text and it's not in our willpower or resolve. Now this, of course, is a storyline of the scriptures, is it not? I mean, whether you're here today and you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible, God's redemptive work, or you're here today and you're just beginning to explore what Christianity is and you've got lots of questions, maybe uh, some real doubts, um, hopefully this will help you connect some of the dots. And those dots go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to our first parents, Adam and Eve, their epic failure of, of resolve in the garden to be faithful and, and responsive to their creator, our God. Uh, they're buckling under the offer of a new path, a, a be your own God, create your own destiny. And uh, that epic failure then has deeply affected and marred the image of God in every one of us and all their descendants so that at the heart of the human endeavor since the Garden of Eden is uh, this crazy propensity to think that we could, we could, we could do it. We've got this. We could make, we could figure out how to, how to outmaneuver God, how to outmaneuver the forces of creation, uh, to craft our own destiny, to conquer uh, and succeed and do it all. And yet the storyline tells us whether it's Adam and Eve through Noah, through Abraham, Moses, and David, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, uh, that there's nothing but a reminder that all human resolve ultimately fails in the end. And um, this is an interesting note. If, if you've ever wondered if scripture is in some ways fabricated or massaged a little bit to make it look, make people look better than they really are, you, you'd be hard pressed to prove that from an account like this. Uh, if, if the early church really endeavored to spin a narrative that made the church look powerful and resolved, you wouldn't write a narrative about all the disciples falling away this night, of failing epically like they did. Uh, it's, it's just another reminder to us that the scriptures give us the beauty of truth, 
the hard truth and honest truth about our, our great deficits, our great failings. Um, this is the source of the problem, right? The fallen human heart. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, Jeremiah 17, Mark 7, Jesus makes it clear. It's out of the heart that comes sinful behaviors, attitudes, actions. So what does this teach us about the epic failure? Well, we have this saying, never say never, right? Uh, never say never. Uh, and we use that phrase, I think it comes back, goes all the way back to Charles Dickens. It was like, never give up hope, never say never. Well, I'm gonna put a little different twist on it. Never, never say never that you think within your own abilities intrinsic to you that you have the capacity to fulfill all the obligations and commitments put upon you uh, with your own strength and your own resolve. Look at the text as it flows down from verse 31 to 33 to 34 and 35. Jesus says to them very clearly in verse 31, and he's quoting from Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And um, Peter, and then he says, uh, and you will all fall away because of me this night. Peter's response, though they all fall away, and of course he's referring to the other disciples. Well, now I don't know about them, but hey, I'm not going to fall away. Verse Jesus, again, leaning into it in verse 34, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples say the same in verse 35. And then the unthinkable happens, right? They fall asleep. They flee, and they deny. I mean, I really think if it came down to a sword battle, Peter probably would have went to his death. If he could, you know, grab a sword like he did at the arrest of Jesus, his idea of dying with Jesus was going down in battle, not being arrested and tried like Jesus did was. So the unthinkable happens. And uh, we should humbly take note that, as Paul would tell the church later in 1 Corinthians 10, let he who stands take heed lest they fall. John Calvin commenting on this uh, in the 1500s says we, as only the reformers would say it so bluntly, we see clearly how stupid is the intoxication of human presumption. J.I. Packer, theologian, uh, in the same vein, but a little more nuanced, would say, unless the Lord destroys your self-confidence, he cannot do much with you. God in his mercy allows us to fail to rid us of our self-confidence. Now, some of us are wired to be incredibly self-confident, and some of us may outwardly not feel self-confident, but we all feel at some point, because of our human nature, that we've got this. I could do this. I remember years ago being at a, a wedding of a young couple, and so it, they, were, they were 
very young and the, the whole, the party, the wedding party was very young. And so the best man, he must have been 19 years old. And he, he raises a glass to toast the newlywed couple who were only about 19 year olds also. And he says, it's just like, you two know exactly what you're doing today. And, and all of us, all of us older married folk are thinking, you have no idea what you're doing today. You don't know, just the vows, the ridiculous vows that you have just pledged to each other. If you in any way think that you could keep those with your own strength and resolve. And Jesus does this for us. He, he's, he's actually ministering to Peter. He's trying to break down Peter's self-confidence tonight. No, Peter, you will. In fact, you'll one-up this. Not only will you not, you will be a standout tonight, Peter. You will distinguish yourself beyond all the other disciples. Uh, but it won't be in the way you think you will distinguish yourself. And we would do well to, to curl up small and, and realize that our confidence and our competency and our sufficiency and our adequacy uh, is only rooted in the work of God and his spirit in our lives and not in our own confident abilities. So the epic fail of human resolve then points us to the, the agonizing victory of Jesus. The agonizing victory of Jesus. Do you all remember, maybe, maybe some of you are too young, uh, but if you, you lived in the 60s and 70s and watched sports on TV, you know, ABC, Why World of Sports, Jim McKay, the announcer, you know, it would always start with the... Um, the, you know, the why world of sports, and they would show the thrill of victory, and then they would show the agony of defeat. It was always this downhill skier that wipes out horribly, and I don't even know who he is. What a horrible thing to be that skier who was actually filmed and shown. It's just a terrible wipeout, but it's, it's the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Well, as always, God, all the gospel works counterintuitively. This is, not, this is the agony of victory that's given to us here. And what, what we're about to, what we see presented to us uh, is stunning, okay? So let's look at the stunning anguish recorded for us here in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, the Luke account says that Jesus being in agony, and it's from the Greek word agonizo, where we get the word agony. It says in verse 37, that as they're in the garden, after he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, it says he began, he began. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, you need to realize how stunning this would have been for those disciples, okay? The last time that Jesus peeled off Peter and James and John to be with him was in Matthew 17. And it was the Mount of Transfiguration. The last time it says he began, it was as he began to be transfigured in front of them, face shining like the sun, glorious white uh, garments that no, no tide 
pod could ever clean. Uh, that they have this, I'm sure Peter, James, and John are saying, oh, it's happening. He's taking the three of us off again here for private, you know, he raised Jairus' daughter with just the three of them. He became transfigured with the three of them. <clears throat> but what happens in the garden when he takes the three of them? He begins to be sorrowful and troubled. And, um, and then he goes on, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is unraveling for those disciples. This is Jesus. He's the one who calms the storms and faces down demoniacs. He uh, doesn't flinch before powerful elites in the temple and threats to his life. So why? Why is Jesus suddenly, at this time and place, becoming so troubled in their presence? Others have faced death uh, also, right? I mean, this, this get, you know, again, talking about the authenticity of the scriptures, this could seem like an embarrassment to the early church. Wait, Jesus actually got scared or it just became undone here. I mean, others have faced death, even obviously within the church itself. You have Polycarp, one of the early martyrs who defiantly told the Romans, bring on your lions, bring on your fire. I will not deny Christ. You have Reformation stories of uh, uh, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Cramner who all went to the stake and were burned for their confessions and died. We have Socrates himself who drank his hemlock uh, and, and went with this sort of confidence. And then you have Jesus, uh, troubled, deeply troubled. So why, why is this so? And, and the answer to that question really is given to us in Jesus' prayer. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, in that, there's something very powerful here. One, he's, he's crying out to his Abba Father. And he is referencing a cup that will pass. Can this cup pass from me? Now, the cup... Everywhere in Old Testament scriptures, from Psalms to Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel, is used as an image of God's just punishment and judgment, his wrath. So you'll find it in Ezekiel and in Isaiah as God will pour out his, the cup of his wrath upon uh, nations and on those who rebel against him. So the cup that Jesus is referring to then, which would be unmistakable to the disciples, is a cup that contains the wrath of God. The wrath of God. If this cup, if this wrath, Father, if your just wrath can pass from me, may it be so. Uh, one of the commentators in the Gospels, uh, 
William Lane. He says this, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. Jesus is beginning to, to taste the just punishment. He's, he's getting a foretaste of what it will be to endure the, the, the wrath of the just wrath of God for the sins of all his people. And it is staggering to him. Remember, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And he is staggering under that for the first time to, to be separated where he has been united etern in eternity past with his father. To have that, to, to the bitterness and deprivation of to taste hell itself uh, is, is staggering for him. And, he's, and this is the agonizing, the anguish of the victory of Jesus. But look at the resolve. Not what I will, but what you will. And this happens three times. Three times, Jesus asks these prayers. Um, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, in verse 42. And then in verse 44, he went away and prayed for a third time. And each time, the disciples have fallen asleep on him, unable to watch with him in this moment, this extreme moment for him of anguish. They're asleep. And it's almost as if Jesus, at some point, you would think would be tempted to say, okay, they're not worth it. They can't even stay awake while I'm anguished. I'm going to I'm gonna have to drink a cup for these epic failures around me. But it doesn't faze him whatsoever. Look at the resolve. Rise, let us be going. Verse 46, my betrayer is at hand. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is, is following his father step by step through this, fully aware that he is giving himself to this process, knowing what awaits him. So let's talk about living a cross-centered life. What does it look like to live a cross-centered life? D.A. Carson Again, commenting on the significance of Jesus being in a garden, even though we're not told in the Gospel of Matthew that Gethsemane is a garden. We know in the other Gospel accounts it is a garden. Carson says this, in the first garden, the Garden of Eden, not your will, but mine, changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will, but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. What does it look like to live a cross-centered life? It begins with trusting begins trusting that the work of the Lord Jesus, the second Adam, who was victorious in the garden, where our first Adam failed in the garden, trusting in his victory and what it accomplishes. It is trusting that 
since Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, means that by trusting in his finished work, we can now also say, not my will, but your will, Lord. Uh, Even though it may be incredibly costly for me, I'm going to have to die to myself in my relationships, in my marriage, uh, in my will, in my desires. I'm going to have to constantly die, not my will, but yours be done. We could say that and live that increasingly because the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, said that in the garden for us and was victorious. Living the cross-centered life means trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus and his victory, his sacrifice, his drinking and draining the cup for us. It means resting in what that accomplished. Trusting, resting. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It means resting in the righteous record now covering us because of his anguish uh, that he took, became sin for us and may have put an end to all our foolish endeavors that try to justify and build our own righteous case when the perfect righteous record has been given to us in Jesus. We are fully welcomed and accepted because of him. It means serving. The, the, the living a cross-centered life means trusting in the agonized, the anguish of the cross, resting in the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus at the cross, and serving as those who are people of the cross. You know, very interesting at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, it says when he, one of his appearances to the disciples, John uh, 20, 20 and 21, I believe, it says that he appeared to his disciples, said, peace be to you. And it says, then he showed, him, showed them his hands and his side. Well, those are the, the pierce marks, right? Showed them his hands and his side. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Now think about that. Go as I have been sent with the marks of crucifixion, uh, strength and weakness, sacrifice, dying to oneself. Jesus didn't draw a broadsword out and say, as the Father has sent me, so I send you to use coercive power and conquer using whatever political forces or any other forces to, to try to bring about a new heavens, a new earth. No, he showed him crucified hands and a pierced side and said, as the Father sent me, so I send you, people of the cross. Live the cruciform life, serving humbly, dying to yourselves, trusting, resting, serving, and finally worshiping. Carson, in his commentary on this passage in Matthew, as he unpacks Uh, the imagery of the cup of wrath, the anguish of Jesus for us, Uh, his, his love. What wondrous love is this, that he would endure this all when he could have stopped it instantly at any moment. Um, Carson says this calls for hushed worship. Look at our savior. What a savior in the garden. Standing victorious, 
where our, where our fathers failed and where we failed. Look at our Savior willing to endure such anguish and agony, tasting death and hell for us. May it bring us to a place of hushed worship of him. Let's pray. Lord God, may you grant to us a deep, trusting, resting, serving, and worshiping faith that we would live this cross-centered life because of our Savior who went to the cross and began to experience the anguish of the cross in the garden. And where our first parents failed, he was stunning in his resolve and victory. That victory is now by grace through faith granted uh, to us as well. May we be hushed in our worship, all our self-confidence, uh, all our cravings for power and uh, influence when uh, the only power and influence we ever need is that of the Lord Jesus. Lord, uh, may you prepare now our hearts to encounter him and his goodness and beauty at this table before us. We thank you for the gift of his life and death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.